Hi, this is Barbie Moreno, and I'm here with Rick on his podcast. Today, we're going to talk about mental health and addiction and how I was able to overcome my addiction and work through life to have a beautiful, beautiful life. So let's get started with the show. You're listening to Rick Flynn. With a shout out from London town, it's Rick Flynn Presents... Now, ladies and gentlemen, your MC for the affair, Rick Flynn. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Rick Flynn Presents today. I have the beautiful Miss Barbie Moreno on the line, all the way from California. She has her own website, which I'm going to be telling you about. She is an author. She is a podcast host. She has her own podcast, of course. Her website, PathwaysToGratitude.com. PathwaysToGratitude.com. All the way from California. A, our guest, Miss Barbie Moreno. I wish they all could be California girls. Have you ever heard of that, Barbie Moreno? Well, Rick, I think I hear it a little bit too much being born and raised in California with the name Barbie. And it certainly does not help that my husband's name is Ken. <laughs> Your husband's name is Ken. You're Barbie. Oh, I can hear the jokes. Your whole life, people have been talking about that. Have they not? Absolutely. We get it from every which way, shape, or form. Oh, my, oh, my. And just for the sake of my asking, I don't really know this, but how long have you and Ken been an item? Uh, months, years, a long time, short time, how long? 12 years. Well, that's not bad. That's And I understand you have a couple of children as well. We sure do. And they absolutely can't stand that their parents are Ken and Barbie because they get it every way, too. <laughs> oh, I, now that I believe that. Oh, the, and kids can be brutal in that regard. But, you know, there are women that collect those Barbie dolls. And just because the girls that collect them turn out later on in life to be grown women with children of their own, they still maintain the collection. Have you ever known or heard of that? I have. I find it kind of interesting because, you know, they've outgrown their Barbie dolls and I'm not really sure what they're going to do with them. But hey, whatever floats their boat. I agree. And, you know, I heard of this was years ago. I knew a young lady back. I guess I was in my 20s at that time. But her mother had a spare bedroom in the home. And this bedroom was total and complete Barbie dolls everywhere. They designed shelves around it. I guess there were several hundred in there, at least. Have you ever heard of anybody taking it that far? Um, I've read about it and seen about it on TV, but being that my podcast is primarily talking about mental health, I kind of am worried about that person's mental health. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and then you know what's going to happen. One day, she's going to will that collection to her own daughter, and her own daughter is going to have to do some construction at her home to accommodate it. But that's not why we're here. How about if it floats your boat, do it? Is, is that acceptable? 
That's my saying. So if it floats your boat, be my guest. Right, exactly. Well, Barbie Moreno, you are about, quote, breaking stigmas. You are about sharing struggles. You are about empowering minds. And you are here with us today, even though we started off on a light note. We're going to get serious for a moment because, first of all, let me say it takes a strong person to wear their heart on their sleeve, you might say, and discuss their struggle with the world under the auspices that you can help others to not have to go through what you have gone through. And this is the first time you and I have ever met. I do not know what you have gone through, but I believe, based upon what I have read anyway, and that's all, that a lot of this if not all of your struggle began post-childbearing, right? You have your two children. Mm -hmm. And if I could ask, what are the ages of of the two kids? Uh, 15 and 9. Okay. So was it nine years ago, let's say, that your Mm -hmm. struggles began, or was it 15 years ago that they began, if I could ask? So I didn't know when I had my 15-year-old that I had postpartum depression. I didn't have a bad case of it. I was just kind of, um, they call it like the baby blues, right? Yes. But when I had my son, who's the nine-year-old, that was a whole different experience to the point where I had no idea. Like I would leave boiling water going constantly and my husband would have to go around the house and make sure, you know, I didn't leave things on the stove and it was a whole different situation. So even though I had it the first time, the second time was where it really changed my life completely. I was reading, you thought initially that it was a situation which a lot of us may already know called mommy brain. And for those that don't know what that is, why don't you help them out? What is mommy brain? Well, so mommy brain is, you know, you after you give birth, you have so much going on and everything is so new. You're exhausted. You have a ton of different hormones taking over your body. And so basically it just kind of feels like you forget things, you know, almost like being in like a cloud. Um, Oftentimes the only things that you can do is basically take care of your baby. You almost never take care of yourself. So it's just, you become like forgetful. You might become a little bit sensitive, cry a little bit. It's typical, obviously, because of the hormones. And I actually read somewhere that while pregnant, the female mind like actually changes so that when she does give birth, she can concentrate all her attention on her child. So mommy brain is actually very, very common. And women feel oftentimes like they're doing something wrong or something is wrong with them. And this is actually a change that happens physically for the benefit of the child and the mother. But we're just not told about it. Right. Now, I heard you say one once you said that mommy brain is when you put the milk in the pantry and the cereal in the fridge. In other words, you are not doing things normally. Your brain is like scatterbrained and and that is because your body is, if I could use the word, it's a non-medical term, but your body, let's say, is in disarray. Is that what, what would be behind mommy brain? being pregnant has caused you not to perform as you would normally. Yeah. I mean, it's a completely different situation, right? Like now your body has decided its main goal is to take care of the baby and where the milk
milk and the cereal go, the body doesn't care at that point. The mind doesn't care at that point. And I think that because it's not talked about, so many of the moms just think like, you know, what's wrong with me? I can't function. I can't do this and I can't do that. And that in and of itself can cause, a, you know, additional depression because we think we're doing something wrong and we don't know that it's just part of the birthing process. Right. And now your husband, Ken, he started noticing this type of strange behavior or did you notice it long before he did? So on my side of it, I just felt off, right? So I just felt sad. I didn't want to talk to anybody. This is now part of the postpartum depression, right? So the only thing I cared about was my son and everything else was just too much for me to focus on. And anytime I tried to do anything else, it just, I just would forget that I was doing it. So I never even knew I was leaving stuff like literally on the stove. I caught our stove on fire. I never knew I was doing that until my husband told me because I would just forget that I was doing that. And so it goes into a place where your mind doesn't even like register what's going on. And you're living in like this fog of just like not being able to do day-to-day stuff. Then it had to, at some point, get you into a doctor. And I don't know what type of a doctor would handle that. I'm going to take a wild guess and say it was either a psychologist or a psychiatrist or both. But can you help me out? Did you seek medical help and was it valuable? So actually, I didn't. I went in for a checkup for, um, you know, postpartum checkup that women go in and they have you fill out like a questionnaire. And so I just answered the questionnaire. And then when I got back into the doctor's office, they went over my answers with me and they said, well, you're depressed. Like the way that you're answering these questions show that you're depressed. And I was actually completely shocked that I was depressed and that I hadn't answered the questionnaire in a way that showed I was doing well. And so as soon as I took that questionnaire and they told me that I was depressed, they the gynecologists are now, OBGYN and gynecologists are now allowed to write prescriptions for postpartum depression. So they don't actually give you psychiatrist or a psychotherapist to talk to. The gynecologist, OBGYN, will write the prescription and put you on something for postpartum depression. So this began my journey of being interested in mental health. And that's because one, they just basically stick people on a generic um, antidepressant that usually doesn't do anybody any good. It didn't do me any good. It made me actually significantly worse. And they don't talk to you about mental health at all. They just basically tell you, here, take this pill and this will help with the depression. And that absolutely did not help with my depression. And it sent me down a whole spiral of different things that probably we'll get to talk about in this podcast. Absolutely. Now, they would not talk to to you about depression. Did anybody talk to you about depression in the doctors or out of the doctors? Not initially. I had to go find my own resources. So once they put me on the antidepressants and it, they actually made me worse, I made an appointment to go see the, at that time I had an HMO where you had to basically go and see their people. So I went and I saw, I made an appointment for their psychiatrist, psychotherapist who talked to them about the fact that not only is the medication making it worse, but you know, I, at this point I had become 
desperate. Like I couldn't really get out of bed. I, you know, I was just literally a mess. I couldn't function at all. And at the same time, I was expected to go back to work because I had already used up the time that I was allowed for my maternity leave. So I had the stress of having to go back to work with the ability, not, you know, not even being able to function and not having any resources for dealing with my postpartum depression. And nobody talks about it. Even in the female community, it's different now you know, it's getting better, but nobody talks about what you can expect, what postpartum depression looks like, what the difference is between just having like the baby blues or the mommy brain versus what true postpartum depression is. So I just felt like I had no idea what was going on, but what I knew was that I was not doing well at all. And I had to take the initiative to figure out what I needed to do to get help. But also when you're depressed, taking that initiative is a lot of work, right? I mean, you, you don't have any motivation or energy, plus you're raising a newborn. So for me, it was self-initiative that got me to get more information and finally get the help that I needed. And I would say that our culture does not teach women about the things that they can expect or may expect um, or should expect after giving birth to a baby in general or the mental health that comes with, you know, being a new mommy. Well, you have just educated me. Right now, as we speak, an OBGYN is allowed in medicine today to prescribe a script, to write a script for postpartum depression. Is that still the case right now? It is, and it's often the only person that a lot of uh, women who suffer with postpartum depression almost only ever talk to their OBGYN. They almost never get to talk to a school psychiatrist who should be writing the scripts because everybody needs a different type of medicine if they if they do need medicine. So yeah, I mean, I feel like it's the system of the fact that the OBGYN is the one who writes the scripts. There's not a lot of follow-up with it. And it's basically very generic medicine that they put them on. It's like one or two different types of medicine. And there's so many different types of antidepressants and anxiety medication out there that to put people on a generic medication is, in my opinion, poor medical treatment. Right. And they never sat you down one time like a psychiatrist would or a psychologist would and said, let's get to the bottom of this. That's not the business they're in. They're in obstetrics and gynecology. They're not in psychology, right? Exactly. And also nobody encouraged me to make any type of a follow-up appointment with somebody who could help me understand what was really going on. It was literally, here, take this medication. We're not going to tell you much about what it is. And, you know, hopefully this helps. And let me tell you something else that's important, I think, for people to know. If you're on the wrong antidepressant, it can make you suicidal. Oh, and I believe so that. for them to just prescribe, yeah, absolutely. And so for doctors, you know, OBGYNs to be prescribing antidepressants, in my opinion, is not okay because what if they put you on something that sends you down and that's what happened to me. It sent me down a whole spiral. And again, I... I had the motivation and ambition to not want to be in that space. So I did find a psychiatrist and a therapist and I ended up having to pay out of pocket to go see a good one because the one that my insurance covered, I had been given six different doctors in a matter of nine months. 
And so every time I would go in for a checkup with when I actually put myself, you know, to talk with a, um, a, a psychiatric doctor, I would go in and there would be a completely different doctor there. So you have to explain your, your whole situation all over to a completely different doctor. All the doctors had a different idea of what medication I should be on. So my medication was switched constantly. And at some point it was just to where I couldn't even function with the stuff that they had me on. I was fortunate enough to have enough money to go and find my own therapist and my own psychiatrist. And I really believe that that is the only reason why I am where I am today, because I had the financial means to go and find my own people who actually did help me. And you paid for that out of your own pocket or no? $400 an hour. Yeah. Oh, really? An hour. Really? It was not covered. Yep. Oh, it was my. not covered. And and that was because I had that particular HMO. However, most doctors, at least in California, most of the doctors who are actually very good in their field do not take insurance, even if it's a PPO, because they don't want to be told how to treat a patient. Whenever you're getting paid by an insurance company, they basically dictate whether what you should be doing for the patient. So even though, even to this day, I still work with the same team that I worked with back then, I still have to pay out of pocket to talk to them. I now have a PPO so I can submit the bill and get partially reimbursed. But the entire mental health system is not made to help people long term. It's made to put a Band-Aid on it so that they go away. And oftentimes people don't get the help that they need because either they can't afford it, they don't have the options, they don't live in California where there's a you know amazing doctors. I mean, maybe you live in a state that doesn't have access to mental health, like a place like California. So it's the, the mental health system in general is not set up to help people. It's set up to put a Band-Aid on them and then hope that they do well enough so that they can go to work and make some money. Right. What is a PTO? A PPO is a preferred uh, provider option. So with health insurance, you either have what's called an HMO, which means that you go to doctors that have agreed in the group to work for this for this this insurance type, which is an HMO. And so those doctors get paid oftentimes whether or not you come or not. So they're just basically paid to have you as uh, one of their patients. And the less they help you, the more money they make because they're they're paid a certain amount for you. And whenever you come and use services, that money is taken out from the money that they get to to service you, right? So the less they do for you, the more money they make because they're not paying for the services. On a PPO, which is the preferred uh, provider um, network and is, is significantly more expensive if you get a PPO, you get to choose which doctor you go to and they have what's called in-network and out-of-network. And how much is paid is based on whether that doctor is in-network or if that doctor is out of network, less is paid by the insurance company for you to go. In general, a lot of the good doctors don't take either insurance because, well, HMO is off the table, right? You can't even bill an HMO after you've seen the doctor. But a PPO, they don't even take a PPO because it, it dictates to them how they can treat you. So a PPO is a better, in my opinion, insurance option, but still not not enough because they do still limit what can be done for you. If my memory is correct, HMO is Health Maintenance Organization. Would that be right? That sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, and then a PPO is Preferred yeah, it's per- Provider yeah. Organization. Provider. Those are the exactly. ones where so they- you can select who treats you. All righty. Now, let me step exactly. to the side yeah. just a moment. Is this what you were going through in any way connected to 
heredity? Was it a problem with family members such as, for example, your mother mm-hmm. before you, et cetera, et cetera? Is it, yeah. re- is it related to heredity? Some of it is. So on my father's side of it, he has dealt with um, depression and anxiety. Now, I don't know my dad well. I wasn't raised with him, but I do know that he's dealt with it. And then his father um, dealt with it as well and ended up um, overdosing and dying because he was using drugs to uh, medicate himself. So yeah, there's mental health issues on my dad's side. My mom is interesting because she never even knew that she had postpartum depression until I had it. So she was one of those women who thought she just had like the baby blues. And then when I had postpartum depression and she saw what I was going through, she said she had the exact same thing, but she had no idea that she had it because nobody had talked to her about it. It can be hereditary, but there are people who have postpartum depression or even just depression or anxiety in general that have um, you know family members that they don't know of any hereditary history. Did mom have the quote mommy brain syndrome? She, I, you know, I don't know. I'll be honest with you. She's not very open about that. I know that she, when I was going through my symptoms with my son, so the second child where they were more severe, she said she felt like she had gone through something similar to that. Not, not as bad, but similar to that. So I would say she probably actually had postpartum depression, not just mommy brain because mommy brain goes away and postpartum depression, if not treated, can just get significantly worse. I know mothers who won't even touch their children, um, their baby because their depression is so bad. They don't want anything to do with anybody. Oh, my. My, oh, my. Okay, now, you say that you were forced to go back to work and make a living before you were actually ready to do that. Why was that? In my position... There's a lot of history to this. Okay. So one, in my position at that company, there were not a lot of females in my field, number one. Okay. And it was a very, very competitive position. So one of the things that you could kind of like earn or get for doing a good job and being like a top performer was an office space on this like elite floor where all the very wealthy people work, right? So I had earned that spot for myself before I had gone out on maternity leave. I had been in that in my office for, you know, a couple years or whatever. And so when I was on maternity leave and I, I had my postpartum depression, I let my boss know that I needed to take an extension, which was still within my California right. And he he wanted me to come back to work. And I said, I cannot come back to work. Now you don't have to disclose which, you know, what you have as a mental illness or anything like that. But I just said, I cannot come back to work right now. I have a medical issue. And I got a call from one of my coworkers who said, a few days after that, that they had moved all of my stuff out of my office and replaced me with a male. And so I called my boss and I said, you know, uh, what's going on? And he's like, well, if you're not going to come back to work, I need to put somebody in your office space. And I said, well, you, I mean, why would you do that? Like I'm, I'm out on maternity leave. Why would you put somebody in my office space? Isn't that like protected leave? And he said, no, it's not. It's not. Your office is not protected. And so I called HR and I said, you know, is this true that my office space is not protected? And they said, 
said, yeah, your office space is not protected. Your job is. Well, you have to understand when you're a commissioned person, basically, if you don't go to work, you don't make any money. And although I was on maternity leave at the time, if they removed me from my office space, I would have no means of making money when I came back because those were the people who gave me the business. And so I went back to work. The agreement was if I went back to work, I could have my office space back. And I didn't actually get my office space back. I actually had to get a different office space. Um, But if I didn't come back, then I wouldn't have the opportunity to be on that elite floor anymore. So I came back and I wasn't well. And then it got worse from there. And you turned to something else, which really caused you, as you put it, to eventually hit rock bottom. Tell me what happened. Well, so to deal with the stress of work and being a new, you know, uh, uh, having a new baby and all of that stuff, I, I started drinking wine after work to kind of calm down, which I think is like, you know, something, especially in the business world, it's very normal, I would say, to do. You know, you go, there's so many people who go after work and have drinks and stuff like that, or they come home and they have wine. Well, I have, I have a body that, um, and a personality apparently, that doesn't like to just have one glass of wine. And so I, I would start by drinking a glass of wine. And before I knew I had drank a whole bottle of wine. Well, some people may say like, well, you know, I drink a bottle of wine. It's not a big deal for me. But for me, it was a big deal because it was the only way I could get my body and my mind to relax. And so it started becoming more of a habit than it should have been. Now, I'm a very, very self-aware person. So after, you know, two years of doing this and making my life worse, not better, I was not a nice person to my husband when I was drinking. I wasn't, you know, you get hungover. You're not like the best person in the world. I figured out that this was not something that I should be doing. And I uh, immediately joined AA and quit and never drink again. But for me, and I know a lot of people are going to go back to this because alcohol is legal. It's actually socially acceptable. So I think a lot of people will hide their stress and their anxiety and, and you know, deal with their day by ending it with some alcohol. Oh, that's, that is not uncommon. And alcohol, although it is commonly referred to as a stimulant, it is far from a stimulant. You know what right. it really is in real life. It yeah, it's is, a depressant. It is a depressant. It's a depressant. Yep. And so when you're drinking, you're, you're actually... You did not take an antidepressant. You drank your, tried to drink your problems away. Is that what was going on? Right. No, I was taking my antidepressants, but I was drinking. So, and again, antidepressants only work if you work a program. So you can't just take a magic pill and get better, right? And I was taking my antidepressant, but when you drink on an antidepressant, it actually makes you more depressed. So it was like the antidepressants weren't working because I was drinking. Again, you know, I think because it's acceptable. Like if you tell people, yeah, I drink wine after work, nobody says anything negative, right? And so because it's acceptable, you don't necessarily see it as doing something that's harming you. You're just thinking that you're just trying to get rid of the stress and just check out for a little bit. Right. And you were mean to your husband. Were you mean to your coworkers or or no, because you were not drinking during the yeah. business hours? Your, your coworkers knew right. nothing was, about it? No. Yeah. 
they knew nothing because, you know, uh, I, I never drank during the day. It was, I literally always had the same bottle of wine, the same kind, everything like that. And, you know, my husband and I, we would sit in the hot tub and we'd chat and we'd have a great time. But my husband can stop if he's, you know, if he's had a couple of drinks, he can stop. But unfortunately, my personality, I have alcoholics in my family. There's just some people who, who tend to um, be, be more addicted to things. And I, apparently I am. I, I couldn't stop. And, you know, sometimes it was fun. We'd have a great time in our hot tub and chat. And it was like our time together, which was also a great excuse for me to drink because it was my time to sit with my husband and chat in our hot tub. But a little bit too much alcohol. And then, you know, that gets to that personality where all of a sudden you're not, you know, you start bringing up the past or blaming things and stuff like that. And so I, my, I'm married to an amazing man and, and he's done a lot of beautiful things. But when I was drinking, drinking, anything in the past that I had possibly was upset with, about him with, I would bring up and pick a fight. And it was, it wasn't anything that he was doing at the moment. It was just part of the depression and the, the, the pain I was going through personally. That is not uncommon at all. That happens all the time. I've seen people pick yeah, a I mean, fight with people. strangers because of that darn alcohol. <laughs> you know that. Absolutely. Absolutely. We do, we do things that uh, we would not normally do and it's interesting too because so now obviously I do a lot of work with um, um, people who uh, are recovering alcoholics or recovering um, addicts in any way shape or form and the the people that were are in an alcoholic or an addict's life they are the ones who get hurt because see when you're drinking and you say stuff and then you wake up tomorrow and you don't remember what you said you think everything's fine and dandy but the person on the other end of it the receiving end of it remembers all the mean nasty things that you said which most of the time you don't even mean you're just being a jerk you know and so so for families, it's really, really hard. And I was one of those people who I never drank around my kids, right? And so I always thought, well, I mean, I'm a responsible drinker. I never drink around my kids. I only ever drink at night. And I only ever really drink when I'm sitting in the hot tub with my husband. I didn't drink every single night of the week. You know, I probably drink three or four nights of the week. So in my mind, I could make all of the excuses in the world as to why I wasn't an alcoholic. You know, a lot of people say to this day, the fact that I decided one day I wasn't going to drink and never drink again clearly shows I wasn't an alcoholic, but I don't believe that's true because my actions showed I was. And it primarily, I think, was to numb the pain of the stress of working for a company that literally broke my heart when I had to go back to work and living in a world where you're depressed. Right. That is that is absolutely no. It's not fun for sure. What happened in your life to where you knew that you had hit, quote, rock bottom? Because they say that an alcoholic will never be cured until they tell themselves, I want to be cured. And most people are not that strong. They're not like your husband. They can't have two glasses yeah. of wine and stop. When did you hit rock bottom and say, this is it. I've had enough. I've got to do something. What happened? Mm, it was just one night. Again, we were like drinking in our hot tub or whatever the case may be. And, you know, I was one of those people who would black out or, you know, um, 
I would still be awake, but I wouldn't remember a lot of stuff. But I, I remember specifically that night, I was, I'm sure I had picked a fight with my husband and I went to go slap him. Now we're not physical people. We don't hit each other in any way, shape or form. Never, never would. And luckily he dodged my slap, but I went to go slap him. And I did remember that. So the next day I woke up um, and I felt horrible guilt that I would ever in my life try to do that to him and that, you know, that he would have to, sorry, it brings up emotions. Right. No. That right. he would have to be subjected to that, you know? Right. Yes. Yes. And by the way. And that was it for me. I thought, yeah. No, you go ahead, dear, because <laughs> I do know, and while you're collecting your thoughts, I just want to say what you are doing right now is something that people often don't have the strength to do. That's why I said at the start of this interview, you wear your your heart on your sleeve. Other people can see and take comfort in knowing that they have the same problem that you had and they're doing nothing about it. You had the problem and you're flourishing. You're, as they say, thriving right now. What if I could ask you, if that person is listening to us right now, worldwide, I don't care where they are. It does not have to be in California and it does not have to be in the USA. No matter who it is, if they want to quit, what are you going to tell them with your experience? It has changed my life for the absolute best. Um, I know that it's hard. I know that a lot of people have um, shame. So a lot of people continue to drink because they have a lot of shame and guilt. And I can tell you that if you, you know, whether you go through AA or whatever kind of program you go through, that if you do the work, your life will be significantly better. I have the best life now. And it's because I took that step to make that change. And you have a great husband in Ken. I do. All righty. Now, what we have here is a situation which it would seem to me you had to go to a doctor. And did the doctor finally get instructed or told that alcohol was involved? And if so, what did the doctor yeah. tell you? Um, she asked, So interestingly enough, I had already been going to my current doctor at that time, but I was hiding the fact that I was drinking. And so finally, I told the doctor, you know, that I was drinking, um, which you know, is a whole different, whole different conversation, right? Because alcoholics or people who are doing stuff like that, even if you're going to a therapist or a psychiatrist, if you're not honest with them, they can't help you. And that was what was going on with me. I was not honest with her about the fact that I was drinking. I did tell her that I, you know, I drank, but I didn't tell her the amount that I was drinking. So when I finally fessed up to the amount that I was drinking, um, she actually put me on, I thought was something that was extremely helpful to me. And it was called naltrexone. And naltrexone is actually like it it makes it so that your body cannot um, alcohol does nothing to you. It's the same thing. They put people on it who like um, are on painkillers, who, you know, who are addicted to all kinds of other things. It makes it so that you cannot you can't get the, the feeling that you would get from either the alcohol or the opioid or whatever it is. And so she put me on that and that made it bearable because I didn't if I wanted to drink, it didn't do anything for me. Right. So it was like a waste of time and money. Like, so you very quickly learn that if you're taking this, that nothing, nothing's going to happen. You're not going to get any kind of reaction from the alcohol or whatever it is, the drug that you use. So she put me on that. And then at that point, because I had become honest with her, I could work through all of the different things that were making me want 
to numb myself by drinking. And again, so I think the the point in that is that if you have people in your life who want to help you, or if you have people that you've hired to help you, if, if you're not honest with them, you can't get the help. And if you're lying to yourself or you're lying to them, you will never get the help. You have to be honest with yourself and with the people who are trying to help you. And in your case, that medication prescribed to you, that really, was that really the, uh, oh, the last straw in, in knowing that your body could not take in the alcohol anymore? In other words, was that medication what caused you in large part to be healed along with your personal desire to want to get out of that lifestyle? Uh, if you know what I'm saying. I think, yeah, I think it was a very helpful tool. Um, especially if it, for people who are long-term drinkers, like I, I know some people who are long-term drinkers and they've never even been offered that medication. So I think it was a helpful tool, but I have to say that no, for me, that wasn't like I would have been able to do it probably without the medication because the situation that happened with my husband was for me rock bottom. Um, and I actually would say that um, AA was uh, the program that helped me find myself. Again, I don't currently go to AA. There are some people who go to AA for the rest of their life. I don't. Um, I do know people and stuff from it. But the 12 months that I did spend in it, doing the work is actually what healed me. It was, it wasn't anything, a pill that you could pop. It wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't an antidepressant and it wasn't that medication. That medication made it a little bit easier, but I think I would have done just as well without it because I was healing myself and I was healing myself through the program of AA. And there are other programs out there, but you have to heal yourself or you're just going to go right back to it. Boy, isn't that the truth? Now, in your case, once you had an entire bottle of wine, not just a couple glasses. It took a whole bottle, and that's what started you on the the downward spiral. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah, no. Like so, as soon as I had one glass of wine, I was feeling good, right? The thing is, is that when you have a, uh, if one glass is good, two glasses is better, right? And so when you're in this like mind space where you're basically just, I was literally trying to forget everything from the day, from the life, all the stress, and so you know, one glass, I forgot a little bit, two glasses, I forgot a little bit more. And so it became easier and easier to drink more as time went on because it helped me forget. And it helped me forget maybe for, you know, uh, just that evening. And I had to deal with a lot of repercussions the next day by my body not feeling good and, you know, whatever it is that I said the night before. But the time that I forgot to me was worth all of that for the for the for the time that I did it. Your husband was your best cheerleader. He stood by you during all this. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember that like there's the idea that two things, right? So you can go to the place to say like he was my best cheerleader, but he was also my drinking partner. Right. Okay. So yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Was he an enabler or did he just want you to just have a good time? Because he assumed that because he could stop after a couple drinks that you could too. Yeah. I mean, so uh, both. Right. So I think he was an enabler because when I was drinking, I was fun. Right. At some point until I 
did, wasn't. But also, you know, we're, we have two kids. We both work a lot. And for us, it was just our, t- our time together. It was sitting in the hot tub drinking. And so I think he enjoyed us having our time together. And the, the fun outweighed the, the bad, meaning I wasn't a, you know, a jerk to him every single night. And so I think it was both for us. I think that there was some enabling because, because it was, it was our time together. And, and like I said, it was when we had fun. And then I also think that because he's a, a really big guy, he's six foot six and he's, you know, he looks like a, a court, uh, a linebackman. He's humongous that he can handle the alcohol. And he didn't understand like the amount of suffering I was going through with the hangovers and then it adding to my depression because he didn't have that situation going on. So I think it was both. And also I think that he loved me enough to put up with me being a jerk to him. Right. And I have a quote from you. Quote, today, I no longer feel the need to use alcohol as a band-aid to distract me from reality. I now have the ability to accept and adjust to any changes or challenges that would have caused me to stress out before I learned to live mindfully and make meditation a daily gift. I give to myself. So now you've brought in meditation. And what is that? Is that Zen or is there any any word for it? Uh, can you describe that and how it has helped you? Yeah. So I think that when people hear the word meditation, they think of you like sitting cross-legged with your fingers on, you know, and and sitting there quietly. And sometimes that is what meditation is. Basically for me, what it was, is it, it was me taking time to reflect and to give myself space and to forgive myself if I felt like I, you know, had done something that was, uh, you know, maybe I snapped at my kid or something like that when they were being, when especially my son, when you, you know, being annoying and I yelled or something and we don't really yell in our house. So maybe I felt horrible about that. So it would give me time to sit and reflect and forgive. And so for me, meditation can be anything from taking a walk, not listening to anything, right? Because here's what happens is like people go for a walk and they put in their AirPods or their their earphones or whatever, and they're not really in the moment. They're not uh, being with themselves. They're not being with nature. So I learned to go for walks and not have anything to distract me and just be in the space. I learned to understand that whatever thoughts are in my mind are okay, to be okay with all everything, um, to not be judging myself. And that becomes part of the mindfulness, which I actually now teach to children and I'm working on teens and I also teach to adults. The mindfulness is just understanding what emotions are coming up, why they're coming up, just allowing them to be without being judging, right? Because I think a lot of people use, you know, alcohol or drugs or whatever to escape from their life. And so if you actually sit with your life, you don't need to escape from it. And that's what I learned through using those tools. It took a long, long time. I don't know how many books I've read. I don't know, you know, how many things I've gone to. And that's just what I'm trying to teach people now that it, it can happen and it's one step at a time and there's no judgment. If you can't sit there, you know, quietly because you're not somebody who can sit quietly and then you do a different type of meditation. Maybe you do breathing, but the tools are always going to help you. You just have to give yourself the time to work the tools. This is also you right here. Quote, 
mental health is no joke. It's just as important as physical health, and it's time we start treating it that way. I hope that by sharing my story, I can inspire others to seek the help they need and find the tools that work for them. After all, you say, we're all in this crazy journey of life together. And you know, whether it's prescription painkillers, which are addictive, or whether it's alcohol or whatever, have you we're all in this crazy journey of life together and the excessive abuse of any of those things will result in a shortened lifespan didn't your doctor have something to tell you about that yeah so two things so i feel like people always look at mental health on the extreme right so people who have depression anxiety who are suicidal but mental health is mental health it's like any other kind of health right? That's what I'm saying in there. So two things with that. One, it's a daily upkeep. Just like if, you know, people go for a walk or run or exercise their body, they have to take care of their mind. We forget about our mind, which by the way, carries most of the load, right? Think of everything that we're doing with our mind all day long. And second, it's like, if you broke your leg, you would not, you know, not go to the doctor and just say that you hoped it got better, right? Or you'll work through it or you'll tough it out. You would go to the doctor, get an x-ray, get a cast and get it fixed. So when people have mental health issues, they need to think of it like that. You don't just tough it out. You go get help. Just like if you broke a body part, our brain can break just like our leg can break. And you need to treat it just like that. Go get help, get it, you know, work through it and you'll heal, but you can't do anything. You can't tough it out. And that's the thing about mental health is that people just say, you know, if they're suffering from something, I'll just tough it out. I can, or suck it up, especially for men, because it's not talked about a lot for men. And so they just say, you know, you know, don't be a wimp, just suck it up. And, and it's like any other body part. It's like any other part of us. If something isn't working right, you have to get it fixed and get it fixed by a professional. You wouldn't go take your broken leg to your brother down the street and have him try to cast it for you. (laughs) You want to go get it fixed by a professional, right? So my doctor and I, I love my doctor, by the way, I, I am very blessed to have an amazing doctor, but my doctor and I talk about this all the time because in our society, you know, we deal with so much stuff constantly constantly on our plate. Everything is now, 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 now. That even somebody like me who does mindfulness daily and who, you know, does our meditation and lives a life, I would say I live a very peaceful life at this point and on my journey, still judges myself, still has fears, still has all these things. So you need to take the time to work through them just as you take the time to work through all the other things in your life. If you put time into going to work every single day so you can earn money, you can put time into taking care of your mental and physical health because without those, you won't be able to go to work and earn money. Without those, you won't be able to have a good life. So we have to remember that it's all together a journey and you don't have to be extreme. You don't have to have depression. You don't have to have anxiety. You should be taking care of your health, your mental health, just like you take care of your physical health. I've never heard it and I've never heard it as succinctly as you just put it. Nobody in their right mind, I don't care who they are, would break their leg and say, ah, I'll just go home and sleep on it. And, you know, we'll let this broken bone cure itself. They would not do that at all, but they don't think of mental health in the same way. If they did, you're saying the world would be a better place because these people would receive treatment and they would know 
something is broken and it's going to get fixed. And it would be, so it would be accepted, right? And so because if it was looked at in the same way as somebody breaking their leg, you don't shame somebody because they had a broken leg. Nobody goes up to that person and goes, oh my gosh, you're so weak because you have a broken leg. But if people talk about having any type of a mental illness, there's a stigma put on them and they're shamed. And it's like, this is just part of of, of a physiological thing, no different than, you know, a broken leg. the, the chemicals in the brain are not firing the way that they should. It's something is broken, whether it's in the leg or in the brain, it's broken, right? And so it's not that the world would be a better place, it's that people would learn to accept and love themselves better. And because of that, they wouldn't, the world would be a better place because we wouldn't be so stressed, so judged. We wouldn't live in so much fear. We, we, would, we would be okay with who we are. And that's the journey. The journey is just being okay with who you are. If you're having a crappy day, you're having a crappy day. You don't judge yourself for it. So it's not like every single day is blissful. It's just accepting the journey. Right. But when they accept the journey and they have high stress in their life, the alcohol, the drugs, whatever you have there, that is to numb the pain, if I could use that term, right? Yeah, it's absolutely to numb the pain. So they're not accepting the journey. They're not living. They're not, they're not accepting the situation in their life. And by accepting it, then you can work through it, right? When you numb it, it's just like if you numbed your, okay, let's go back to the broken leg situation. So you broke your leg. So then you, uh, you know, you did something that helps with the pain. You took a pain medicine or whatever, but you continued to walk on your broken leg. You think your leg is going to get better or worse. It's the same thing with the brain. Right. Well, I'll tell you this. I watch the baseball games with professional teams, MLB, Major League Baseball, and everyone one of the players, as you know, you have to be physically in good shape to play that game when a ball comes across that plate at sometimes 104 miles an hour and you're holding a stick Mm -hmm. and they want you to hit that ball out of the park. You have to be in pretty decent shape to do that. But you know, occasionally people will get hit that play that. They'll get hit by the ball. They'll have somebody crash into them. They'll hit a a retaining wall in the back that's made out of steel. Anything can happen and if it happens, I'll watch the game. If it happens in the second inning, by the time that game is over, before that game is over, they already have the results of of the x-ray and the scan and they say, well luckily, nothing was broken. And they actually have the machinery right there in the clubhouse I'm told to where they can immediately find out whether one of their players has something broken. And there's nobody calling those athletes a sissy because of that. That's common sense. Now, why you're on the bandwagon here saying, let's treat mental health the same way. You're not going to sleep it off. Does that, is is that anywhere near what it is, the point you're trying to get across? Yeah. And I feel one, you're not going to sleep it off. And two, going back to, it's not even just the people who are going through issues. It's literally all of us. Because all of us every day have things that go on. All of us have, I mean, I don't know about you, but every person I talk to has something in their childhood that screwed them up, right? And so all of all of our 
actions that we do based on that. You know, our parents said that we had to be X, Y, Z, so we took this job and now we hate it or whatever the case may be. We all are going through and living through um, different situations in our life. So you don't have to have a broken uh, leg, you know, to go to the gym and work on your legs, right? So you don't have to have a broken mind to go and do things that are mindful and meditating. You do it because it's keeping you healthy, just like going to the, the, the gym and working on your body keeps you healthy. You work on your mind not only when it's sick, but you work on it when it's doing well so you can continue to build the health in it. All righty. Wow. Ladies and gentlemen, Barbie Moreno is with us today. www.pathwaystogratitude.com. Pathwaystogratitude.com. You are the host of what is known as the Mental Hell Podcast. Tell everybody, what is that about and how can they listen? to it. So it's mental health. It's M-E-N-T-A-L. So mental dash hell, H-E-L-L. And it's on Spotify, Apple, Amazon, basically anywhere that YouTube, anywhere that you can stream. And on my podcast, we just talk about different situations, you know, that have to do with people. I had a gentleman on who had a gambling addiction and, um, you know, had gone to jail and lost his contractor license. I've talked to people who talk about, you know, um, how your physical health uh, affects your mental health. I've talked to people uh, I have one lady that the podcast is coming out and her son committed suicide. And we talk about the, the stuff that he went through and the, the help that he did not get because of the way that mental health is viewed in our society. And he wasn't able to get the treatment that he needed because he didn't have the money to pay for the treatment that he needed. So we just talk about one, sometimes we talk about tragedy. Sometimes we talk about things that can help us, um, you know, with our uh, day-to-day activities in life to help keep our um, mental health and physical health um, happy and good. Uh, we talk about basically anything that could happen in anybody's life. It's just an open forum for people to tell their story and for me to ask questions, dig deeper. Absolutely. Wow. I'm telling you what, your website, Pathways to Gratitude, Pathways, the word to T-O, Pathways to Gratitude.com. What's going on there and how does your website help others. You can describe that to those that have never been there. What are they going to find if they go there? I love my website. I'm always evolving it. Um, So one, you get to read my story, which I feel like even if your story isn't my story, the fact that there is somebody out there who understands is always comforting to people. I work with children on mindfulness because, you know, often children are told what they can and cannot feel, you know, suck it up. Again, we do that whole suck it up. You're fine. Da, 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 da. And they don't know how to deal with their emotions. So I wrote a book and it's in a series right now. The first book is called Where Are My Feet Planted? You can buy it on Amazon and on my website. And on my website in the children, I call it Zen Kids section, there's free meditations for children to go to sleep. I'm working on uploading some mindfulness practices that kids can do. Um, I currently go to different schools and teach the children um, mindfulness exercises. And then on my website for the adults, there are some meditations that are free. So these things are free because I don't need your money to help you, right? I'm happy to put these things out there to just give you something to look at. So there's meditations for adults on there that are free. I'm also working on uploading other things and mindfulness exercises for adults. And then you can always, there are things, there are services that you can always purchase. I do personal and business coaching um, to help people work through things. I have some people that I've coached for years and they 
they're tremendously more healthy physically, mentally, and in their business. So the the website, there's a blog on there. So I kind of just talk about um, different things. And then I have my podcast on there. Um, My blog, I have the mental health blog that goes with this situation. And I have the Fiercely Feminine blog, which talks about, you know, women in this world and the different things that we have to go through and how fierce we are. I mean, we, we, we go through a lot of things. Think about the postpartum depression and making it out of that and still being a good loving mother. And uh, I, I think I'm a good mother and I love my children and I went, I'm fierce. I made it through that. Boy, that, that is absolutely amazing. And I'm certainly glad that you did. I have known and I have seen and anybody that has been in the music business uh, as long as I have been, ma'am, knows people that have terminated their lives because of that alcohol and then some. So it is not really a pretty sight. And if somebody is out there and they're struggling, they know they have a problem, but they don't feel comfortable talking about it. That is the whole Mm -hmm. problem. That used to be you. What do you tell somebody Mm -hmm. who obviously has the problem, but they keep their lips sealed like having a broken leg and thinking that sleeping it off just because they're not playing sports anymore, that broken bone would heal. Nobody is that stupid. If they don't talk about (laughs) their mental issue or their substance issue, what do you have to say? You've been around the block a couple times. Talk to that Mm -hmm. man. Talk to that lady. What should they do? I think that the biggest step is to find some sort of a support group. And the reason why is because, like, I loved Alcoholics Anonymous because we would tell our stories. And, you know, when you're drinking, you do some pretty stupid stuff, right? And so you think you're like the only one who does these things, you know, whether you peed in a corner, you know, uh, because you were so drunk or whatever the case may be. But when you're in a group of people who have the same problem, they get your stories and you laugh about them. And the shame becomes something that it's no longer shameful because you get to talk about it. So, you know, whether it's a, an addiction or it's a mental health issue, I say that you, a support group is a, such a beautiful place because you're with people who are dealing with similar issues. So there's the shame goes away and the shame is what keeps us from talking about it, right? The guilt and the shame. So the shame goes away because now you have a safe place to talk um, and you always want to make sure you're in some sort of a group where, it, you know, the it's a safe place. You need to make sure you feel safe there in order to let free and open up. But find yourself a support group. If you can do the research, if you're having mental health issues, you can always find yourself, you know, a, a therapist, do your research, make sure you feel comfortable with them and, you know, work on yourself daily, like like you do anything else in life. Like you go to work, like you work out, you work on your mental health daily. Boy, that is so true. Barbie, I want to thank you for coming on the show. I'm sorry. I kind of uh, uh, had you... Uh, uh, reminiscing about the old days. Uh, I hope uh, you you won't hold that against me. But you know what? I think that don't you feel when you reminisce back to those days, doesn't it just give you more of an impetus, if you will, to live a better life just for the sake of not only your children and Ken, who is your husband, but just for you? Doesn't it, it, it uplift your spirit and, and confidence? 
confidence in everything that you do. Yeah, I mean, so being able to overcome all of that helps me know that I can overcome anything. But I don't mind talking about my past because one, talking about my past, I know people can relate in some way, shape or form, and I hope that I help them. But I'm not ashamed of my past. I'm not ashamed of any of the stuff that I did because it got me here today to be in this position, to be able to empathize and sympathize and help other people. So talking about my past is just part of who I am, and I'm grateful for it. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, Barbie Moreno, what do they do? Uh, you can go to my website, which is pathways with an S, two T O gratitude.com. Um, my email is very simple it's Barbie, B A R B I E, at Barbie Moreno, so B A R B I E M O R E N O.com. Um, and my phone number is on um, my website. You can email me, uh, you can send me a message through. YouTube. I'm on YouTube. So there's many ways. Just you can Google me and you'll find many ways of contacting me. Well, I'll be darned. Very, very well. Ladies and gentlemen, we've reached the end of our hour right now. I cannot thank this beautiful lady enough for helping everyone out that has listened. And I've just enjoyed hearing what the problem was, how the problem was corrected. And now you're dedicating a large part of your life to not only helping similar people that had the issues you had, but your books, a lot of them are about children. Where do they get the books if they want any of them and and how many of them are there and so forth and so on? Tell us just a little bit about the books before we say goodbye. Yeah. So right now I just actually put out my first book, which is the uh, Where Are My Feet Planted? You can find it on Amazon or you can find it on my website. It is a theory of discovering the magic of mindfulness. So there's actually going to be three books in that series. And then I'm working on a book for teenagers because I actually think that they need help uh, right now more than most age group. So I will have a book out on teenagers relatively soon. It'll be more of a workbook. Very, very well. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Rick Flynn speaking. It's been fun, but I've got to run. My heart goes out to this wonderful California girl. I wish they all could be California girls like Barbie Moreno. I think she has done a tremendous job in telling you the who, what, when, where, and why of how she got in the shape she was in and what she did to correct it. Think of these problems as you would a broken leg. That's the first lady that's ever told me that and I could not agree more because nobody is stupid enough. I don't I don't care if you have no education. I don't care if you have two PhDs and you're a doctor. You're going to get that leg fixed. That's what you're going to do. Don't underestimate what happens with mental health. Don't underestimate what's going to happen with excessive substance abuses. You all know that. I know that. Barbie knows that, and she has made me look at it a little bit differently now than what I have the whole entire rest of my life. I thank you, Barbie Moreno, as does everyone that you've helped. Get a hold of her, everyone, if you need help yourself or if you know someone who does. Thank you for listening to us, everyone. New shows every Wednesday. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new show, a new guest. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you then. Good night.
And thank you for having me on the show, Rick. I really appreciate your time and you taking the effort to make this subject available to all of your viewers. And we're just very, very grateful to have people like you in this world making a difference. The preceding was a Rick Flynn production. This is your announcer, Chantal Marie speaking.